Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to SFF Addicts, a bi-weekly panel podcast featuring writers from fanfiaddict.com, guest authors, publishing professionals, bloggers, and more, where we come together to chat about science fiction and fantasy, as well as the occasional jaunt into the wider SFF industry. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and today is part two of my interview with author Nicholas Eames. He's best known for his fantasy series, The Band, including Kings of the Wild and its sequel, Bloody Rose, which have garnered acclaim from both readers and the industry. Nicholas and I have known each other for about 10 years, so this interview was a good opportunity for us to chat more casually. And if you've already heard part one, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. In part two, we dig into writing craft and creativity, the positive trends in SFF and where the genres are going, music, video games, and much more. Remember, this is part two of a two-part interview, and part one is also available to stream and download right now. I recommend you listen to the first half before jumping into this one, just for context's sake. Also, apologies for the audio quality. I recorded the interview this past May and hadn't yet bought a studio microphone. Overall, the quality is not too bad, and it's worth listening to, but please don't judge too harshly. All right, now, on to my interview with Nicholas Eames. Here we go. I was talking to you recently about the Spanish, uh, selling the Spanish rights. You already sold the Spanish rights to Kings of the Wild, um, and then you just recently confirmed that Bloody Rose is going to be printed this fall. Yeah. Um, what does that that say to you about sort of like the global reach of science fiction and fantasy in terms of the way that so many of these books are being translated and, and permeating across different cultures and countries and languages? And also, how do you feel personally about your work being translated into different languages? Another excellent question, my friend. Uh, I should also apologize my foolish lighting. I mean, the sun is set. Well, dude, you, you, don't, you, don't have a, you don't have tattoo lighting like yeah. I do, so. I was relying on the, the sun to bring out my baby blues, but it's okay, man. So now it's just a lamp on one side and a hockey game on the other. <laughs> just like a nice blue light from the TV and then light on the other side. Anyways, what was the question? Just kidding. I remember it. Um, So, I mean, like, I'm overjoyed about, like, having things like the Spanish edition and things like that. Um, And I think a lot of it can depend on who publishes it, what the translation is, who does the translating. Um, I've had you know, versions of it where people are like, this translation wasn't that accurate. Um, and with something like the Spanish one, it was, it was done by a guy who was like a huge fan and a kind of a friend of mine beforehand. And he actually knew before I did that it was going to be translated into Spanish. He was like, listen, I know people in the industry, your books, you're getting a Spanish deal. Can you please ask them if I can translate it? And I was like, well, I hope you're right, buddy. Um, and then sure enough, two weeks later, I did get one. And, um, and yeah, he translated it. And, and he, he, more than anyone else, like, would constantly write me emails and say, what about this? What about this? What should I change this to? What do you think about this? And so we went back and forth on a lot of stuff. And from what I understand, the Spanish translation is, is, really, is really a good one and one that a lot of people seem to like, resonate with. I'm going to have to pick it up in Spanish. Just to, yeah. just to see how, how it, how it translates. Yeah. Cause I'm really, I'm really curious about certain, certain, uh, when it comes to translation, how certain words get translated. I don't know why just owl bear popped into my head. Yeah. Um, but in Spanish it would be oso, which is bear and then buo, which is owl. So it would just be like oso buo and like one word. Yeah, it works. I have no idea, man. And I know he tried to, like, if something had to be changed, he tried to still, like, make it a, a music reference and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was working, he was definitely working hard on it kind of thing. Um, but the same goes for, like, like, a lot of, obviously, a lot of English books get translated and go around the world and things like that. And the same, the same goes for Spanish books. Um, for me, creatively, like, I take so much from, uh, like, Japan and what they produce. 
And, you know, if, if I wasn't getting media from them, I wouldn't be producing the stuff that I'm producing mm-hmm. uh, or enjoying my life half as much without anime and, and uh, video games. In video games i don't really i don't read like the manga really but obviously that influences a lot of people and influences a lot of the people that have created things that i like in the in in the western world so yeah i'm all for you know the sharing of the sharing of ideas. yeah i mean it's it's this beautiful sort of cross-pollination of cultures you know obviously there's a point where you can get to very blatant cultural appropriation type yeah. stuff but I think so long as things are done with respect and it's done sort of in communication with another culture, as opposed to um, telling them like, this is how it is, Mm. or like my perspective is more important than your perspective, then it's really beneficial and really uh, fluid for these things to just sort of like translate from one culture to another. In your case, if the translation is done very well, it's a much more (laughs) seamless process. Yeah. Yeah. But I I think it's maybe just recognizing what's not your story to tell at the moment, you know, like there was a time and not that it was ever necessarily right, but you know, if there was going to be a book that was popular in America about that was like a Japanese fantasy book, a white guy was probably going to write it. Mm -hmm. Um, But nowadays it's like, it's just, you can, you can instead not write that story and amplify people that are writing those stories because they're out there. And they just weren't getting the chance to kind of shine before. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in that sense, what do you think of like the state of science fiction and fantasy today? And like, what are some more positive trends that are, that are hitting the industry? Um, Well, I mean, diversity obviously is the biggest one. Um, Like I said, getting to read books that, that draw upon other cultures, but make it fantasy is awesome. You know, like it's so cool. And even if someone did it before, they didn't do it with the same sort of authenticity that it's being done nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just writing nowadays is so much better than it was, especially like 50 years ago. I mean, a lot of people would disagree with that, but it's true. Um, you know, the same goes for, I'm, I'm like, I'm like that with everything. Just because something's old doesn't mean um, well, we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to music at some point. That might be a different story. But yeah, yeah like, maybe a different story. The same <laughs> God, like things like movies. Like I remember watching Casablanca for this first time and being like, "This is people don't talk like this. This isn't realistic. This is nothing about this is any good." Because maybe like the cinematography, mm-hmm. you know, the the writing can be good, but the acting, like, like you know, compared to like Matthew McConaughey crying in front of his space monitor in Interstellar, yeah. it's, not, it's not on a different fucking level. Like, yeah. no one was doing that. No one exactly. was. Well. Well, quick aside, I don't know if you know that in Hollywood back in the, in the once it was transitioning out of the silent movie area, yeah. era into, into black and white films, and they had to start recording the voices of, of people, there were so many actors whose voices were just terrible. Um, so they had to go through sort of like Hollywood-wide elocution lessons in order to get them to talk in such a way. And yeah. so that's why so many of these old movies, it's for me, it's a bit unbearable to listen to them where they're and not talking like this, you say, and ha, 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 ha. And the women are talking sort of like they're a bit British, but not really. Yeah. It's all the result of the transition out of silent era and into yeah. this elocution heavy, but ultimately homogenous thing that resulted in pretty mediocre variety. Yeah. If you're showing emotion, it just wasn't the same, you know? Like, no. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say, like, I wouldn't say they're terrible movies, but, you know, I haven't even seen that movie where, um, about Tanya Harding, you know, where... No, I haven't seen it either. You know, but I guarantee you that the acting in that movie is better than the acting in any movie that took oh, place sure. in the 1960s, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, <laughs> a lot of similar to writing, like, Obviously, there was a lot of great books. I'm like, Lord of the Rings is a phenomenal book, but there's no real emotion in Lord of the Rings. It's no. all very kind of distant and stoic. Um, it's not the same. You can definitely infuse it. Obviously, thing, lines like, I'm glad you're here with me, Sam, here at the end of all things. Like, these were real people writing stories, but it's not the same as nowadays where if you read a, a book that's going to get you, like, 
rip your heart out, they're really going to rip your heart out. Like, yeah. You know, in a way that the people back then just did, they didn't because it, it hadn't kind of evolved. But I think maybe that's a transition out of the era of omnipotent um, uh, narrators and, and sort of like POVs towards something that's, you know, whether you see it in YA where it's like, first person limited, super intense, really emotional. This is what I'm feeling because I'm a teenager and just uh, hormones and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, towards people who are really mixing it up and including multiple uh, perspectives, multiple POV styles in a single book. So it's not just necessarily diversity in, in voices and the sort of stories that are being told and cultures that are being included, but also diversity in terms of the way things are being told. hundred percent. Like, and having like characters that are like vulnerable and flawed, like how much would it, Lord of the Rings, how much better would it be if at Weathertop after the fight, Frodo stumbles upon Aragorn and he's there with his like head in his face and his hand sobbing because he doesn't think he's up to like you know be king yeah that'd be more realistic way more yeah. realistic yeah. have humanized that character so much more yeah or if or if uh, Legolas and Gimli who overcome the the unbearable odds of a dwarf and an elf becoming friends what if all of a sudden just Legolas gets fucking killed and Gimli's yeah. just oh Gimli's just yeah. wrecked yeah. Well, what if Sam and Frodo just kissed, for God's sake? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, if that were written today, that's probably what would have happened. They would have been, like, on the fires of Mount Doom. Yeah. And the just Eagle be like, you know? Yeah. And, and Frodo would have said, you know, Sam, I'm glad you're with me. And Sam would have been like, all right, man. Well, yeah. me too. Me yeah. too. And just, like, <laughs> give me your tongue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Oh, well, we'll get, we'll get better books in the future, I hope. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of a cool thing about this genre is it's consistently progressing, getting better and better and better. Yeah, you know, and science I'm, a good example of that, too, because science fiction, like, obviously, there were amazing books written back then, but they were so, like, science fiction had a, you know, so cold and sterile yeah. and cool, but... All about you know, the ideas, but not about the humanity essentially yeah and yeah. so nowadays you're getting a mix of a mix of both i think mm -hmm. actually yeah that was um that was something that i was discussing with <clears throat> excuse me with some of the other writers at fanfi addict is what what kind of a reader are you you know are you more about plot or are you more about character and that really got me thinking just like what books recently that i've absolutely adored and why I got into them like what was the thing about it that really drew me in mm. and at the end of the day it's like okay cool the plot is awesome the concepts are really interesting but it's the characters and their context within that world that make me invested in what's happening yeah you know and I think that is easily one of the best trends is this interplay between plot and concepts and world building and character and when depending on which kind of reader it is, the, the sort of mix of ingredients, like the, the percentages of that, of that recipe caters to a person and, and someone is going to say, holy shit, this is like exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much more out there that people can kind of draw upon now, you know? To... Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it was like speaking of Kings of the Wild, for instance, or, or Bloody Rose. You know, um, I was re-listening to your interview last year with David, just to sort of get an idea of what you guys talked about, and not to talk about too many of the same things, um, or ask, ask the exact same question. Yeah, well, that's what I figured, since, we, since we're friends, we might talk about some weird stuff. But yeah. um, it was, there's one question that he had where he was asking you sort of about the, um, the way in which you wrote Kings of the Wild and how, how you just sort of uh, vomited figuratively a lot of, a lot of the world and 
everything around the characters onto the page as you're writing, not necessarily like you mapped out so much of, of the world beforehand, but you more pantsed it and, and just went for it. And how, <clears throat> regardless, the world really comes out as this um, behind the scenes, living, breathing thing, despite the books being so character centric. Yeah. So for you, how did, how did you, I mean, looking back on it, how do you feel about that sort of balance? And Well, I think like, yeah, I, I mean, I was kind of fortunate in the fact that I, like I did bare bones it. I did just write the story. And if I needed a backstory, I just wrote it on, you know, in the moment. Um, and I was fortunate in that Orbit asked me to add 50,000 words in the end. So most of those 50,000 words were the bad guy, Last Leaf, and all his scenes. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of it was all world-building stuff, whether it was just a small paragraph here or there mm -hmm. uh, that, would, that would, you know, inform without interrupting the pacing. Um, but ultimately, like, like you said, like if you've got characters that feel real, then it almost like infers that the world they're in is real. And you don't need to say any more about it because, you know, when you read a book, say it's a modern literature book and it's about someone from Montreal or Boston or wherever they're from and they're like living their life. It's like, you don't care about, they mentioned, oh, I went to Phil, I have a cousin from Philadelphia. You're not like, oh, what's Philadelphia? I better look up where that is on the map, you know, like you don't need to. Uh, and the same goes for fancy books. Like a lot of people are like, oh, I get lost in the names. And it's like, don't get lost in the names. Ignore the name. Unless... Mm -hmm. You need to know it. An author will let you know it again. Yeah. Just ignore the names. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you concentrate on character and those characters feel believable, then you just kind of assume that everything is functioning around them. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the for me, that's such a beautiful thing about creativity is the ability for our minds to essentially take something that we see in front of us, whether it's, a painting or a TV show or a book, et cetera. And, or even just out in nature where you see a tree and you see the entire structure of this tree, the leaves and the trunk and stuff, but you don't see everything that's going on inside, yeah. but you infer what could be happening inside and your imagination just goes wild with all the possibilities. And it's this really cool interactive, um, interplay between the consumer and the creator um, or the tree and the person to say like, I'm looking at this thing and I'm observing it and I'm interacting with it. But then I, in my mind, am imagining what's going on behind the scenes. You know, there could be a squirrel living inside that trunk or there could be like ants and stuff crawling all over that or something like that. Yeah. And I had the benefit in Kings of the Wild of like, that it's a story of people who, who have a glorious past so I can constantly reference things in their glorious past. And, and that would kind of, I think, make the world feel more believable too, just because you got the names of people, you got the names of places, you got the sense that there was a history there mm -hmm. and it wasn't done through world building. It was done through character. Exactly. Yeah. yeah and it, feel, it feels natural because you, you just through the way that you wrote these characters and the way that they're interacting right now, you can infer, you know, uh, such and such characters have a bit of a harried past because the way that they're interacting now, there's a bit more, just a, uh, a bit more roadblock, a bit more of, of this hurdle of, of past uh, aggressions or conflict that haven't necessarily been resolved. Yeah. And because they're coming back into the world and they're like, oh shit, things are really different now. That alone gives the reader the sense that, oh, things were different before, like, mm -hmm. bam, got yourself a world that's changed since these characters interacted with it. So, so that automatically feels real too. Yeah. And it's perfect. I mean, they, by the way, <laughs> I just loved it. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that, that's, that's like kind of something I wanted to talk to you about is just this idea of creativity and ideas and how, how we, we just absorb so much. You're talking about your, your inspiration from Japan, for instance. We absorb so many different things from so many different places yeah. um, that no matter what, it's, it's an absolute guarantee that everyone will succumb to tropes 
everyone will succumb to um, sort of repeated uh, character types or or plot structures, that kind of thing. But yeah. just the way that we absorb things naturally and then the way that creativity works, I wanted to get your idea on 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 that sense of like what we absorb versus what we create and how those two things interact. Well, I mean, every writer in the history of time will eventually write the line, so-and-so held or let out a breath they didn't know they'd been holding. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those things I saw it on. I know I've used it. I've used it probably at least three times. And uh, I saw it on Reddit and it was like people just tearing that fucking line a new one. And I'm like, well, I didn't realize it was so hated. You know, at the same time, how's your book coming along, asshole? Like, <laughs> Actually, quick, quick aside, I, I watched, uh, uh, do you know Murphy Napier? She's a uh, YouTube, she's a booktuber. And she released a video today that was about like this word that she fucking despises. And I just laughed so hard. Uh, essentially, it comes down to her just sheer, just, just innate dislike of the word undulate. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah. And how it's so misused in, in different contexts about how like a woman and her curvy body undulate and then she mimed it out and she's just like so you undulate like this like a woman doesn't fucking undulate (laughs) and it's just these funny things that kind of um come through and funnily enough uh the dresden files and brandon sanderson were were very much uh abusers of the word undulate (laughs) yeah i mean there's things in every in every book that I'm definitely, definitely picky about word choice. Um, my, like my editor was like, she was like, I never, I've never met anyone who's so nitpicky about using the same word twice within a few pages. Like mm-hmm. I'm so anal about it. And uh, it happens. I think it's happened a couple of times. They slip through me and it depends on the word, obviously, but depending on the word, there's like a larger space of time for me as to when you can use it. Mm-hmm. like my favorite word of all time is inexorable uh, i remember the first time i ever read it it's in a guy gabriel k book of course uh, and lifting a hammer and um it was in that exact book actually the fionnvar tapestry book that i first picked up and i remember i i, and I use it it's hit twice in kings of the wild and i remember i used it right near the beginning of the book um to describe like the passage of the sun mm-hmm. and then I would, use, I would try to use it again throughout writing and i was like no, I can't, you can't use this word. I can use it twice, but I can't use it three fucking times in a book. That's ridiculous. It's too, like, you know, it's too weird a word. And so every time I would measure it against the previous one and it'd be like, nope, this one is better. Um, and so now it's at the beginning and it's at the end. And, and yeah, I mean, I've put down books. I've been reading books. I've been four books into a series and the author used the word vast five times in, I think, two or three pages. And I closed the book. I will never read them again. Like, I'm not doing it. It's like your word, your, your vocabulary OCD. Just <laughs> Yeah, just like, I, I got to care a little bit. And, and it's pretty rare the book that I listen to or read where I'm like, oh, this was just perfect. There was no, there was none of this word choice. But sometimes, and I think I am, obviously I'm too, too concerned about it because I read great books that I love and there'll be points where I'm like, really you just used like you said the word like deliverance twice like and they weren't if it's a style thing great use it twice but if it's not then for god's sake change it but you know this person <laughs> books in the time that i put out zero so <laughs> more power to them this is fine i mean do you think this is kind of like a, a a mix of craft and creativity coming together where it's like the craft side of you is saying be conscious of your word choice and and the creative side of you is sort of saying these are the words that i want to use and i could use but it's not necessarily like there's any guidance unless i have the craft coming in to say wait five pages wait 10 pages don't fucking use that word again (laughs) yeah i mean i always i I, yeah it's something that i weigh all the time like it depends it obviously depends on the word but yeah i'm pretty I'm pretty confident. And my brother is luckily because he's my first proofreader. Yeah. He's always like he uses that line from Dumber Dumber where it's like you can't triple this a double this or whatever. Every single time he catches it, he's like you can't triple concise a double concise whatever. I've 
whatever word I've used twice. Uh, um, but it's, I mean, it's really good that you have your, your brother who's sort of eagle-eyed in that sort of way to be your, your first proofreader, your sort of, I wouldn't even call it like beta reader. He's like your Zeta reader. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah, he can sometimes be a bit too, you know, you want someone that's critical of stuff and he can be critical of stuff, but he's definitely the person that's the least, he's just like, this is great, this is great, this is great. With him, I'm more, I know more what to, t- what to not take out uh, as opposed to what to take out. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the perfect thing. I mean, how is it for you in terms of going through the sort of uh, beta reading process and then editing and revisions and all that? Like how, how has that been for you? Well, I haven't done it too many times, but my lim- in my limited experience, I mean, it's, it's been pretty good. And I think it's because I, because I am so nitpicky about stuff. Um, like, and I was very, very nervous. When Kings of the Wild, like when I gave my extra, my, my cut it out, like when I did my changes for my, my agent, I was so nervous that she'd be like, I've made a mistake. I'm not going to represent you after all. Uh, my editor went they wanted uh, 50,000 words added, and I turned that in, and I was like, oh, my God, they're going to be, they're going to cancel it. Yeah. Um, and then um, with Bloody Rose, I mean, I turned it in. It was past deadline, but not that far past deadline, but pretty past deadline. And so I turned it in as soon as I was done it, and I didn't really get a chance to really like, nitpick it myself. I did a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked to. Mm-hmm. So by the time I got the edits back, I had gone through it again and changed a lot of stuff. Nothing huge, but just small word choices and things like that, um, which isn't necessarily the way they would like it done, but it worked out. There was three of us. There was a, I had a new editor named Bradley on the second one and Emily from... Um, the UK. So that, that time we all worked together on it. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of like, I don't know, I, I wrote Bloody Rose pretty slow and I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And so when I turned it in, like my edit letter, I hear a lot of horror stories about edit letters and I'm sure I'll get one one day that's like, we need to rewrite this whole book. But when I turned in Bloody Rose, Bradley was like, this is a home run. We love it. It's great. A couple of changes here and there. Uh, so that was obviously very nice to hear. Yeah. And I don't want to get into the mindset that will always be the case because it definitely won't be. But I, I was I was lucky in that case. That case was just like, here's a couple changes. I had mentioned a couple things that I thought might be changed. And they were like, no, this is fine. Um, and yeah, they were pretty effusive about it when I turned it in. So Yeah. And how how is that that um degree of confidence and everything that you sort of accrued over the two books how is that sort of translating into the third book outlaw empire and and in terms of the state that it's in right now i know you've done extensive edits on your own as opposed to edits with the the editors but how how has the process been and and Uh, i think it's slowing it down considerably because i don't know like i like when I, a lot of people go back and read their old stuff and they don't like it or they pull it apart. Uh, and to be honest, when I go back and read Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose, I love it. I just love every page. There's like one sentence in Kings of the Wild on the very first page that I would change a word in it. Mm-hmm. Everything else, flawless. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, but it's funny because I, I, sometimes I read it and I'm like, oh, I would nitpick that now, but I'm like, but it's fine. It just works. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of making me probably nitpick this one too much because I, I would like the same response when I turn it in. Mm-hmm. It's great the way it is, but at the same time, they'd, I'd, it's probably best that I just turn in something regardless of what its shape is and help let, you know, let them help me remold it. Yeah, kind of um, get some outside perspectives on, on what you've written so far. Yeah, and in my head, I just, I just don't want to just, you don't want to fuck it up. You know, if you've written two books that you're, I'm really proud of them and, um i'm like yes it's great that i can like make a living writing at the moment but i'm not in it for the money mm-hmm. i mean nothing more than when someone reads those books it's like this was me and this was my feelings on things these are people that i created yeah. and this like, this is what i'm leaving behind and so 
you know, I'm not going to leave behind something that uses the word vast five times in two pages. I'm not going to fucking do it. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's like Guy Gavriel K in the Sarantino yeah. Mosaic. It's, it's about the legacy that you're leaving behind and the fact that you don't want to push out. Yeah. Sorry to some authors, but, but a lot of trash gets pushed out into the, into the market. And yeah. And the thing is a lot of it's, it's very easily enjoyable and, and my books are far from perfect, but they're perfect to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're, they're far from, they don't work for everybody. Um, but they're exactly what I wanted them to be. And there are reflections of you. I mean, just from, from knowing you and reading those books, um, I actually lent both of them to a friend of mine here in Quito. Um, and he's Ecuadorian, but he speaks English and he read the books and he just adores them. He was so, and then I told him, yeah, the author is a friend of mine. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and, uh, and he just lost it. It was hilarious. But um, the thing that stood out to him and the thing that connected us was the sense of humor. And it's like, I became friends with him because of his, our humor just clicked. And yeah. when he read that book, he's like, man, the humor is just on point. It's so good. And I was like, yeah, that's basically Nick. Just like you drink yeah. a whiskey with him and that's what he talks like. Yeah. And it's really good that there's such a pure essence of you in the books yeah. as opposed to yeah. something that's, that's sort of, when, when someone hears you on a, on a podcast or an interview like this, it's a bit distant and it's weird, but in this case, it's not, it's just, this is how you are and this is how you write and they merge really well. Yeah. In real life, I dress like Moog. I act like Madras. I think I'm clay and I wish I was Gamelon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you don't play instruments. Yeah. No. <laughs> Oh, but it's okay, man. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of like this wish fulfillment type of thing that, that we can do as writers, but at the end of the day, really infuse ourselves into it in a genuine way. And, and that's, that's the best, that's the best that you can do really. Yeah. I mean, and I'm very fortunate enough that I have, I've had very patient editors that the books have done well enough that they pay off their advance. If they hadn't paid off their advance, I'd be really screwed just because mm-hmm. I would owe the money, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I still, uh, well, because I'm just a, I, I like to think I'm a decent person. I feel guilty, you know, every day about for the people that whether they're the readers, whether they're editors, whether they're the people on the business side that, you know, are trying to factor this book into their, you know, when it's going to come out. Um, but I can only say from my perspective, like what I'm interested in putting out is things that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in just putting out anything. Yep. I mean, now, now, now you understand how. Patrick Rothfuss or Scott oh my Lynch oh my or George God. Martin Field. Yeah. I know. I mean, I remember I used to, oh, I was stupid back in the day, like waiting for that Scott Lynch book, mm-hmm. you know, and I would hear that he was, you know, whether he was having a hard time and I was like, well, just read your first book, man. That's the cure. That's mm-hmm. the cure. That book's so good. Like, how could you, you know, but nowadays, like that's someone told me that I'd be like, fuck you, dude, you don't know. Like, so yeah. Yeah, I mean it's the it's the just a matter of of the creative versus the consumer. It's it's this very strange relationship where from my perspective just having you know been a tattoo artist and and doing a lot of different creative work that I understand that there's misinterpretation on one side where someone might assume something oh, it's easy. You already put out two books. What's so difficult about putting out the next one? Well, everything is not the same. Every single book is a different project, much as every tattoo is a different project for me. Yeah. And it was very difficult to say like, oh, these are so easily comparable because they're not. They're not. So for me, any author that's taking their time with the work, I understand the intention that you have and that's that you want to put out the best work that you can possible. You know, yeah. and the same goes for Patrick Rothfuss or Scott Lynch or whoever else is is leaving a wider and wider gap between the release of their last book and now, yeah. because at the end of the day, they're people. Yeah, you're not creating something. You're the reader, and fuck you if you think that you have <laughs> the power to say, "Oh, I deserve this right now," because you don't. Yeah. This like, person, yeah, this person created something for your enjoyment. Be patient if you wish to continue that in the future. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, sometimes I wish it's like, yeah, if you're, if you, 
did something for a living that was just like you could just do it and it would be done like if you put the time in but writing's not just you put the time in you have to put there has to be something else there at least for me yeah um, and i am very fortunate in the fact that um my books are not like a direct sequels mm-hmm. so, so it's not like people are waiting on a cliffhanger or anything like that a lot of people didn't even know there was a second book coming out they, just, they don't know there's a third one coming out and that's great you know um the only people i'm really that i'm really concerned like I, so i don't feel like i've left any reader hanging mm-hmm. you know if they get more in the world, they get more in the world. The only people that I feel bad about disappointing is my editors, ultimately. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's like the, pe- the people who are in the background of the, of the book publishing process. Yeah. 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 But it's okay. They, I have no doubt they, they forgive you. <laughs> well, they've been phenomenal so far. So <laughs> it's like the, the peak of patience. <laughs> well, um, yeah. No, I can imagine. I mean, it's one thing to sort of, um, you know, I'm currently writing stuff that's unpublished, but <clears throat> it's kind of a weird thing to think about that when, before you're a published writer, you're essentially just a single person creating something. But then once you become published or in the process to get published, you start to incorporate more and more people. And then all these people are working under this umbrella just to create this single product. Yeah. Um, and it's underestimated, I think, the amount of back, uh, back work that goes into oh, creating totally. something like this. Yeah. yeah, especially like editors. I mean, I did have some idea of it before I got into it that how much an editor influenced a book, but it's mm-hmm. very true. And like, if someone says this book had the same editor, as another book it's not just like oh they corrected the spelling of the word armor you know it's like they're the person that chose to publish that book Mm -hmm. editors like choose to publish a book and then fight for that book uh, with their finance department and their other editors and like champion it Mm -hmm. well some a book has the same editor as a book that you like then there's very a very good chance that you'll like it too because that's a person on the other side of that that has decided to go like this is what i like and this is what i want to see more of in the world exactly it's like all these all these different souls coming together and to create this thing so it's not just a reflection of the author it's a reflection of the agent for representing that author it's the editor for fighting for that author and editing the book and how many people have read kings of the wild because of its cover yeah most of them. <laughs> Shout out to Richard Anderson. Yeah. Shout out to Richard Anderson. Oh, man. Speaking of which, there's, there's this... Uh, I don't know if you've read... I wanted to uh, sort of close this out just to see what you're currently reading or playing in terms of video games or listening to in terms of music. But I don't know if you've read the... Sorry? But great answers for all three. Perfect. I don't know if you've read the Carter Archives by Dan Stout. No. Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bombard you with, with this afterwards. But these covers, these covers, just mm. oh, very cool. Wow, those are nice. Yeah, this is just like uh, the most moody, amazing. So this is the third one in the series. But I'll send you I'll send you some stuff about the the first the first one, um, and it's essentially. Uh, secondary world detective story with like a bunch of different alien races and it's so good it's so good yeah yeah so what are you what are you reading nick reading black sun by rebecca roanhorse um i'm pretty early into it um but so far so good right before that i read on writing by stephen king um good choice good choice yeah i mean it'd be it was a great book. Um, it would be indispensable, I think, for a new author because it, you know, so much of it tells you about <coughs> what you can cut from mm-hmm. a book. So that's something that new authors just don't have. You know, it takes them a while to grasp. It took me forever to grasp. Yeah. Um, I don't think what fantasy book I read right before that. Oh, I just read Daniel Green's book, which was great. I finished that yesterday, too. Breach yeah. of Peace. I was like, please like this, please, please like this, because I like Daniel and you know, a lot from me. So I'm really glad that I liked it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, there were like aspects of the mystery element that I think it could have been a bit longer and it would have served it very well, like another 30, 30 pages or something like that. Um, just to sort of like weave certain plot elements together. But the main character like really carried that book for me. Yeah. Inspector yeah. Clid, I think it is. Yeah. And if there's going to be more then I'll read them hundred percent. Like, yeah. and like, I, there's so many books that I want to put down because I've become so nitpicky about books now that yeah. I didn't ever think about putting it down because it was, it was, it was great. Like, yeah. you know, um, and then listening wise, I just finished listening to a book called the counselor, um, by EJ Beaton, which was great. Uh, she's a poet in real life. And there were a couple lines that were kind of gaga real K-ish, and like, this is pretty good. Um, and now I'm listening to a book called Sword Heart by, I forget what the person's name is. T, I want to say T.W. Fisher, but it's a pen name, so I can't remember what her real name is. Okay. But it comes up a lot when people ask uh, on Reddit and things like that about funny books, uh, and it's hilarious. It's a hilarious book. It's called Sword Heart? Heart. It's about a woman who's currently her uncle died and left her this big inheritance and her her family is like keeping her prisoner in a room and wants her to marry her cousin. <laughs> and she pulls this sword off the wall. She's trying to kill herself with it. Yeah. And pulls it out and there's like a guy, an Irish, an old Irish warrior in the sword. And the two of them escape and go on this adventure together. <laughs> That sounds like, uh, the beginning of it sounded very much like Jane Austen, and then it just like veered yeah, yeah. off into crazy territory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's great. And then playing-wise, um, I'm playing just Final Fantasy, actually, at the moment. My brother and I just resubscribed to Final Fantasy XIV, just like the online one. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then there's a remake of Final Fantasy XII, like an HD remaster on the PS4, which I played a little bit of it and put, put it away, and so I just picked it up yesterday. Okay. Nice. Now I am deep, deep into it. And uh, I saw you were you were playing Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven as well. <laughs> yeah. How how was your experience with that? Because I remember you picked it up at launch. I just I just I just decided not to to buy it because things were a bit messy. And I'm yeah. I'm okay with waiting. But how was it for you jumping in at the beginning and then and then taking a break and coming back afterwards? It was great. I mean, I did take a small break when I heard they were putting this big patch out and I was like, well, I could play other stuff in the meantime. I mean, Cyberpunk storyline-wise, it's phenomenal. It has got an absolutely incredible storyline. Um, it's got, I'm a, such a sucker for like cityscapes, future cityscapes or Cyberpunk cityscapes. I would just like sit there and just like, if I got on a rooftop and it was the right like lighting and element, music sometimes, I would just be like there for 15 minutes, probably just like staring, you know, it's just, I love that. And I hope we don't like live in a dystopian future, but if we do, then at least it'll be nice and nice views. So storyline wise, it was great, but, but they really, it's fucking ugly as hell. Sometimes like the mm -hmm. graphics get in the PS4. Yeah. Um, and so halfway through, I took a break. Me and a buddy came to visit and we played Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. which is phenomenal the um, miles morales right no that was like a little like a mini sequel to this spider-man ah uh, the original one you played yeah so yeah. it was a couple of years it came out a year or so two years before miles morales mm -hmm. i think miles morales is like an even shorter game like even spider-man's only about 20 hours yeah i think miles morales is maybe like 10 or something but it was phenomenal and it looked beautiful compared to Cy when i went back to cyberpunk, cyberpunk it's got all the pieces there like you can see the mist the fog rolling out of gutters like so many amazing pieces and if you just like glance at it it's gorgeous but if you look at it ugly as hell all the textures are ugly so hopefully <laughs> it's still a great game i didn't encounter any like game breaking bugs or anything like that mm -hmm. um very cool story amazing cars you know, they've screwed the radio up to no end. Like, when you look at something like Grand Theft Auto was doing it right, like, in, yeah. like, in, two th in the early 2000s, like, they fucked that part up so bad. Yeah. But it's good. And if there's a second Cyberpunk, it's going to be even better. Yeah, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in at some point, I think. I'm going to give it 
until the fall and then and then i'll jump in and and sort of see what state it's in at that point because it's like i've been going through a backlog of just so much stuff that i missed over the course of the ps4 yeah um like i recently f- played through uh the first three the first two tomb raider games oh yeah yeah and now i'm playing the third and they're just like excellent like super super solid yeah um and the way that they progress from each game to the next is like a really nice iterative um sort of build up yeah um and then i've got like the hitman games that i've never played um and then the last assassin's creed the viking one um, yeah. Valhalla that I've been wanting to play as well. So it's kind of like it's been difficult to 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 get like a PS5 or or the the new Xbox for instance. But I don't know if you're in the similar boat to me where it's kind of like well there's a ton of stuff I missed and a lot of it's really good so I might oh, as well yeah. just kind of yeah take a Do look at the need a PS5 to play or that will be that much better on a PS5 which Grand mm-hmm. Cyberpunk would probably be. Yeah, but I, I don't the pressing need to get one at the moment and i'm like i'm finishing all this backlog with me it's more like old role-playing game series i ever like got into like uh there's a series called the tales like tales of despair yeah yeah yeah. so recently just a couple days ago i finished tales of berseria which is like has phenomenal phenomenal characters but i fucking hated it i hated it (laughs) like i loved it and hated it because the characters were so good, but the game was so boring. Everything about it was so boring. Just the mechanics, the gameplay, everything. Fighting was bad. It was it was too easy, or else too complex. There was way too much of it. And I like I'm fine with like random battles, but it was just the the dungeons were uninspired, just open empty spaces. Um, and yeah, it was just went it went on and on and on. Like it could have been such a more concise story. Your inventory was just a like a clusterfuck of the same item like repeated a billion times with slightly different stats. It was just so annoying. Going back and playing at the remastered Final Fantasy XII, like, I loved Final Fantasy XII when it first came out, but now this one just seems like a masterpiece in comparison. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it was, it was good, don't get me wrong. And, like, one of these days I want to go back and play, there's a game called Tales of Despairia that I was halfway through yeah. that I loved because the main characters were, like, main character in Berseria is like bad but like performatively bad like oh she's on a quest for revenge she's just over the top Mm -hmm. whereas tales of Vesperia it would be like you do something there'd be a merchant that like got away with something even though he wasn't a nice guy and then later that night your main character would like meet him on a bridge and fucking stab him in the gut and and then be totally normal again the next day and it was like that's good that's a monster. That's like socio psychopathic behavior. It was good. It was like stuff that you were like glad to like you were glad it happened. Um, and then there's a series called uh, Trails of, I think maybe just called the Trails series, and it's like Trails in the Sky and then Trails of Cold Steel. Mm-hmm. Altogether, there's like eight games. Wow. Uh, and I, I want to kind of like try to get into them. So, man, you got lots of stuff. Did you, did you ever play the, the Mass Effect games? Oh my god, yeah. Are you going to pick up the Legendary Edition? No, I think I'm done with them. Like, I love them. Like, Mass mm-hmm. Effect 2 is my favorite game of all time. Yeah. Not by far. Um, but I did have to play it twice, because when I got Mass Effect 3, I accidentally erased my data from Mass Effect 2. So you wanted to transfer everything over. Yeah, and I fucked it up, and I erased everything, so I had to go back. I had my Mass Effect 1 data, so I had to play through 2 again. Oh, man. I mean, that's not such a bad thing. No, because it's the best fuck, It's the best game ever. Yeah. But uh, I'm just done with it. Like I, don't, like, I, I don't have time to replay old games. There's so many new games I want to play. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love that it exists. I, I just don't see me doing it. I mean, yeah. granted, I'm literally playing Final Fantasy XII right now, but... <laughs> I feel like there's way more different in this one than there is in Mass Effect. Yeah. No, I'm in the same boat as you. It's kind of like um, I have such fond memories of it that I want to I don't want to like overly rely on nostalgia to to compel me to play this as opposed to sort of souring these amazingly sweet memories that I have of these games from back in the day. 
Yeah, and I haven't heard that there's new, like, there's no new characters as far as I know. There's no new anything. Like, as far as I know, it's just, like, the main draw skin Mass Effect 1 with better graphics. Yeah, and, then, and better gameplay. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, like, say Final Fantasy 12, they redid the entire, like, the way you, do, you choose your class and your jobs. That's all different. So it's like a remake versus a remaster kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, this one's like a remaster, but I guess apparently like a year after it came out in North America, Final Fantasy XII, uh, they re-released it in Japan with a whole, like a better system to do your classes, and they never did it. They never released it in North America, so this one had like a refurbished version of that system. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. Like, Final Fantasy XII, if you've never played it, it does suffer from like lack of a great bad guy, even though I'm trying to appreciate it more this time around, but it's got great characters, it's it's pretty much where i got the idea for having people with bunny ears that it could that it could be cool um and it's very 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 much like it is like an homage to star wars like it's got like really it's like a luke skywalker it's got sky pirate he got a sidekick but instead of chewbacca it's like a a rabbit-eared woman that's extremely capable and awesome so cool yeah it's and the music's great everything about it the detail every culture feels like realistic it's a good it's a good game i mean i haven't played a final fantasy since i think the original seven yeah yeah i didn't even play the remake uh that they that they released i think last year was it yeah something like that you need ps5 just play that (laughs) it's way better than cyberpunk yeah yeah that's true yeah yeah and there's too much good stuff there's too much good stuff yeah and uh what about music what have you been listening to i know you're you're sort of delving into a lot of grunge and hip-hop while you're writing outlaw empire yeah a lot of hip-hop so like for at least for the writing aspect of it it's a lot of i mean primarily it's it's groups like wu-tang clan naz uh, and pretty much every single offshoot of the wu-tang clan like you know, like Jizza and Rizza and, and Raekwon, like all their albums are phenomenal. Yeah. And different than what I was ingesting in the 90s. I was ingesting like, yeah, there's like Biggie because he had catchy lyrics and things like that. But these are albums that are like snapshots of people's lives. Mm-hmm. You know, they're different. They're different. Or like the original, the original um, Outkast albums are yeah. just... Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Man. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. Um, and they were like, yeah, there's a lot of funny stories about Outcast, like living in their basement. and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then just rec- very, 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 very recently, I discovered there was a brand new Greta Van Fleet album. And are you familiar with Greta yeah, Van yeah. Fleet? No, you, you introduced me to them. Yeah, they're the band that gets flack for sounding like Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's, it's like the perfect replication of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah, but different enough to be like new, and it's yeah. just like I just want to tell everyone who hates them to fuck off. And there are a lot of people that do hate them, but yeah. just like so, they have a brand new album called like Battle at Garden Gate, and it is so good. Like, no, so I didn't, I didn't, I don't know why there's like no promotion for this. No, and apparently they had like they have a pretty good producer with it, like with them this time around. Um, mm-hmm. It's incredible. There's some incredible songs on there. There's there's two of them that people like really love. But every song on there has something cool to it. Yeah. And especially the last song on the album, like I hadn't listened to it yet, and someone was like, Oh, that song is great, eh? And I'm like, Oh, I'll give it a shot. And I remember I was lying in bed listening to it. And about halfway through it it ends. You that that slow, like drawn out drum beat mm-hmm. that so many rock songs happens. And you know, I'm like, eh, it was, it was pretty good. And then all of a sudden it begins. And the second half of the song starts, and I was my jaw just dropped. I'm like, "What the fuck is this?" Uh, YouTube like live. Uh, what the song is called? The weight of dreams. Live, yeah. you will see. And it, the whole thing is amazing because they riff at the beginning and they riff in the middle. But mm-hmm. the guitar solo is unreal. Well, the, that's so reflective of like the. I mean, the era of Led Zeppelin and bands like that, where it's like. Yeah there was enough there was enough patience and respect for the music to be like okay so like 15 minute song i'm down yeah <laughs> let's yeah. go for it it's, it's the original song's eight minutes long but the one the live version which you should look up is 15 minutes and it's fucking phenomenal awesome dude i'm that's so excited phenomenal. 
and like any good guitar solo, it's it, it technically is also a drum solo, like in the mm-hmm. background. Yeah. And so yeah, I listened to it while walking, and it wasn't the live version; it was the regular one. But just listening to the drums, and then right afterwards, I put on the guitar solo from Stairway to Heaven, and just mm-hmm. listened to the drums. And they're both just like you don't realize it, but they're such the star of the show. You know, yeah. like if the guitar is like the cresting wave, then the drums are like the Leviathan rising beneath the ocean that's making that wave you know yeah it doesn't exist it's like oh man and i purposely like i looked up like what kind of reviews the album got and it's just like middle of the road rolling stone like called the lyrics uninspired and i was like i went and i remembered i recalled like when led zeppelin first came out that uh, a lot of music reviewers especially rolling stone said shitty things about them mm-hmm. I looked up, and it is almost word for word the review of led zeppelin and the review of this fleet. they both exactly say something like vague or uninspired lyrics yeah well man as as someone who's worked in the music journalism industry i can say that so much of it so much of it is fluff and bullshit yeah so it's like it's it's one of the most it's one of those forms of journalism that is so, so subjective. Yeah. You can't even, you can't even like fake objectivity in, in yeah. music journalism. Yeah. Um, and so all of it is, is dependent on an individual's taste, you know, and just like literature, fantasy and science fiction, all these kinds of things. It's like one man's shit is another man's treasure. And yeah. you just gotta love what you love, man. Because I mean, I guarantee this on the on the most recent cover of Rolling Stone is has BTS on the cover, yeah. and like I love me some K-pop, you know. <laughs> I'm way more of a fucking G Dragon Big Bang fan, but I love it. I love it so much. Um, but but like the word band is you know it's misused. It's debatable. Yeah. You know, some of these instruments. Um, and then, yeah, so the fact that it might have been in the same issue, somebody trashing Greta Van Fleet while BTS was on the cover. And, like, I got nothing against BTS. I love them. Yeah. I love this. But it's just, like, you're just being, you know, it is, like you, like you said. It's trends. Honestly, a lot of it is trends, too. It's, like, what's the hot thing right now? For some reason, in North America, K-pop is just blowing up. I love it. I think yeah. it's great. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, like, the entertainment value is off the charts. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything about it—the personas, the creativity, the the costuming, the fashion—it's all kind of tied into it too, you know. It's like anime, but in music form. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, no, no better way to end than on K-pop. <laughs> I mean, this is where this is going all along. Oh man, all roads lead to K-pop, of yeah. course. <laughs> well, dude, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, man, thank you for taking the time and for dishing all kinds of random stuff with me. Of course. I'm sorry for my bunk lighting. And I hope that if anyone watches this all the way through, it's they fine. find it enjoyable. It's fine. It's fine. I'm probably, I'm going to do this in two parts, I think, because we have been talking for a long time. <laughs> and it's like, it's fine, man. The lighting, the lighting is okay. Perfect. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's all subjective anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, uh, I don't get to tell people this very often, but you're one of those few people who I can genuinely say has been a role model for me. So, um, I, I appreciate that. I'm honored yeah. and you are to me, man. Thank you, man. All right, buddy. Well, uh, I'll talk to you soon and, um, take care. Yeah. All the best to you and your family. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. there we have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed part two of my chat with Nicholas Eames. Thank you again to Nicholas for joining me. You can find out more about him and his work on Twitter at Nicholas underscore Eames, on Instagram at the Book of Eames, as well as his website www.nicholaseames.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on your platform of choice, and share us with your friends. It helps a lot and we greatly appreciate it. You can follow SFF Addicts on Twitter or Instagram at SFF Addicts Pod for updates. 
or shoot us an email at sffaddictspod at gmail.com. You can also follow me, Adrian M. Gibson, on Twitter or Instagram at Adrian M. Gibson. SFF Addicts is part of fanfiaddict.com, so make sure to check us out there for the latest in book reviews, essays, and all things sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the full episode archive for the podcast. All music comes courtesy of the talented Astronauts. Check them out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash S-T-R-O-N-O-Z. All links for the episode are also available in the show notes. Now, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts. (laughs) 